You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. If there is a lot of confusion among believers and unbelievers about the nature and character of our eternal home, heaven, and there is, then certainly there is also a lot of confusion among believers and unbelievers regarding the beings with whom we will spend eternity, namely angels. I find it fascinating that we live in a culture that in some cases utterly denies the realities of any kind of spiritual realm beyond the one that we can see with our eyes and hear and feel. And yet we also live in a culture that seems fascinated with beings outside of our realm, alien visitations and life from other planets, and and even in religious circles, a fascination with angelic beings. And so there is a lot of confusion, not just about the nature of heaven, but also the nature of those with whom we will share heaven. And last week, we moved the ball a little bit, as it were, in trying to clear up some of the confusion about our eternal destiny, the heaven that is to come and where we will spend it, eternity. And this week, we're going to try and clear up a little bit of confusion regarding angels. In the passage before us that is our focus this morning, the top of this list of inhabitants in heaven is angels. You'll notice it in verse 22. And then verses 23 and 24 also have to do with all of the other persons or things that belong to the heavenly city that is mentioned in verse 22. Verse 22 describes heaven as Mount Zion, the city of the living God, a heavenly Jerusalem. And then the rest of verse 22, the myriads of angels. And then verses 23 and 24 describe those beings which inhabit heaven. Notice the list there, beginning in verse 22, the myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, God the judge of all, the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. And today we're going to look at angels. We're going to talk about the nature of angels and what this passage tells us about our eventual assembly there with the angels. Now you might wish that I had chosen to do more than just one of the next things in this list today. But when you drove up, you saw the big smoker that's out on the lawn and you know that there's a potluck to come. So you are going to be thankful that I only chose one of these instead of more than one of these. So even if we get out a little bit early, it'll be a blessing. Because what rests ahead of us is a foretaste of heaven. <laughs> I'm not saying that there's going to be meat in heaven, but I'm not denying that there's going to be meat in heaven either. I have some verses I'm working on and I think my next book is going to be about meat in heaven. I, su- I suggested last week that one of the fruits, the 12 fruits from the tree of life, could taste like bacon. And one of the kids came up and said, if heaven is going to be filled with all the things that I love, and I love meat, then explain to me how it is that I'm going to enjoy heaven. How can heaven not have what I love here? Meat. That's going to be subject to my next book, probably. <laughs> Let's look first now at the nature of angels in our future with them. Verse 22, the heaven is described in those three phrases, Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And then it seems quite natural for the author to take up the subject of the angelic hosts that are in heaven now and are among us even now and the angelic hosts with whom we will spend eternity. 
It is an interesting phrase that he uses, an interesting way of describing what we have been brought to or what we come to. He says we have come as if a past tense reality, we've already come to heaven. Do you notice that? We have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and yet you and I have not come to those things yet, have we? Because we're still here, so we haven't realized that. And yet the author describes this list of things to which we have come as if we've already been brought there and we're already experiencing it. And yet we have not already been brought there in a literal sense that we are experiencing it yet, but he describes it as if we have and if we are. I think that is because our participation in these things, our enjoyment of these things, our being grouped in with these things is so certain and fixed in the mind of God because of what Christ has done in securing these things through His death, burial, and resurrection on our behalf, that the author can describe us as having already been brought to these things. You have been brought to Christ, and if you have been brought to Christ, you have been brought to everything that encompasses Him. You have already been brought to your entire heavenly inheritance. It's already yours. It is already secured. It is already certain. So certain that Paul can speak of our glorification as if it is a past tense event in Romans chapter 8. Because in the mind of God, He has already done everything that is necessary to bring you to this. So while you have been brought to this, you're not yet experiencing that. That is a reality. And so there is a sense in which we have been brought to it, and there is a sense in which we will be brought to it. That's why the author of Hebrews in chapter 13, verse 14, look over there if you have a moment. Chapter 13, verse 14, For here we do not have a lasting city. What's the lasting city? The heavenly Jerusalem, the city of God. But we are seeking the city which is to come. You have been brought to this, but you're still seeking it. So there is a a both and and a a yes, we enjoy it, but and we're part of it, and it's ours, but we don't yet apprehend it. We don't yet experience it. So in many ways, we are just like Abraham. We have been promised this. The enjoyment of it is absolutely fixed and certain, and yet... We're still living in tents here in this world, waiting for that city, that heavenly dwelling that is to come. And part of that possession involves angels. And I will have to confess to you that when I think about heaven, and when I think about the realities of heaven and going there after this life, I don't often think about the angelic hosts that will inhabit that great place with us. I think of you, I think of my family, I think of my wife, I think of my friends, I think of people that have passed on, I think of other people who are already there. One great saint who within the last couple of weeks even passed and went to his eternal reward. So I think about heaven. I think of what he is experiencing there and seeing there and rejoicing in there. But I really don't think of the reality of angels being part of that eternal picture. And and maybe just because I don't commune with them very often, if at all here. And so I, I don't think in terms of their, their place with us in, in heaven. And yet it seems quite natural for the author to speak of angels since we associate angels with heaven. We associate angels with heaven. And angels are not going to go out of existence when the new heaven and the new earth is created. Angels are going to have a place there with us in that eternal dwelling. And I think the description here tells us a little bit about what we can anticipate. So we should consider the nature of angels. And I would love to at this point take six or seven or eight or twelve weeks and do like a series on the nature of angels because I think it would be fascinating and helpful. I'm not going to do that. I want to give you a brief theological sketch of angelic beings and then mostly focus on why they're mentioned here and what the significance of their mention here is in terms of that eternal city and our eternal dwelling. Angels are created beings. 
Wayne Grudem, in his systematic theology, defines angels this way. It's a very simple, straightforward definition. I would only add one word to what Wayne Gr- I'm about to give you from Wayne Grudem. But he says, angels are created spiritual beings with moral judgment and high intelligence, but without physical bodies. Angels are created spiritual beings with moral judgment and high intelligence, but without physical bodies. I would only add one word to that definition, and it would be the word powerful. They're powerful. They're created beings. They're spiritual beings. They are moral beings. They are intelligent beings. And they are powerful beings, but they do not have physical bodies. Angels are not omniscient. Angels are not omnipresent. Angels do not have the qualities that God has that makes Him God. Jesus said that hell is created for the devil and his angels, so we know that there was a myriad of angels who were created sometime before the earth and the present universe was created, and that a third of those angels fell and rebelled, and Satan is their leader. And so Jesus speaks of hell being a place that is created and reserved for the devil and his angels. Matthew 25, verse 41. You and I don't become angels when we die. And that is one of the mystiques, the cultural sort of ideas that floats around in people's heads that after you die, you become like an angel second class. And then if you come back and you help somebody else out, then you become angel first class. And every time a bell rings, an angel gets its wings. That's, that's, that might be what makes a life wonderful, but it's not at all true in terms of Scripture. So that is part of the mystique that we have in our head or in our minds that culture teaches us that Those who are angels now were once human beings. No, they are a different created category entirely without physical bodies, though they do manifest themselves in Scripture in physical form from time to time. And I think that that has implications for the world to come. And I hope I don't forget to to mention that a little later on. But they are created beings. They are beings able to communicate. This to me is fascinating. They are intelligent, rational beings that if you could... If you could have one manifest himself to you, you would be able to have an intelligent, rational conversation with that spiritual beings. You and I are not used to being able to have rational, intelligent conversations with any other created things. But angels are rational and intelligent, highly intelligent. So you could have a, you could have a full conversation with an angel. They are spiritual beings, so they do not have a permanent physical form. They do appear physically in Scripture as men. Um, it is my speculation or suggestion possibly that angels in the new heavens and the new earth will be given a permanent spiritual form. That would seem to make sense with an ability to worship and to gather and to interact in a physical creation that they will live in and dwell with us there. We will be able in the new heavens and the new earth to see angelic beings. Either we will be able to permanently see spiritual entities without physical form or they will take permanently a physical form and we will be able to converse with them. We will be able to worship with them and fellowship with them. Angels are present in this current creation. I think, around us, probably far more than we tend to think or realize. There is that incident, you remember, since Second Kings chapter 6, where Elisha is the servant is in the city and the, the foreign armies surround the city and the servant comes to Elisha and says, Master, what are we going to do now? And Elisha says, oh, you don't need to worry about it. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And the servant's like, wait, what do you, wait, it's like those with us. It's you and me. It's us. It's we're in this little city. We're surrounded by an invading army. And then Elisha prays that the Lord would open the eyes of his servant and the servant's eyes are open and he sees the chariots and the myriads of angels that were around him at that very moment. 
So there is an if, if God were to grant us an ability now to see the dimension that does not exist, we would be able to see the angelic beings that I think join us every Sunday for our worship services and that are with us throughout the course of our lives. Not as guardian angels, like one person assigned to keep you alive for the rest of your life. That's, that's not what angelic beings do. They have a work. They're specifically given a certain work that they're engaged in concerning us, but we don't have guardian angels in the sense that we think of guardian angels. But we do have angelic beings that can go between heaven, the present heaven, and this creation, and even interact in this creation in ways that we cannot comprehend. And I think that they are around God's people constantly, including when we worship. We should consider the number of angels. There's nothing in Scripture that fixes the number of angels and says there's X number of millions of them. But the language that Scripture uses to describe angelic beings indicates that it is a vast number that's far more than you and I would want to have to count. Jude chapter 14 It was also about these men that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of His holy ones. Revelation 5, 11. And the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. The word myriad was a word that would use to describe the number 10,000, which in the ancient world was the highest number that they could, they could ever conceive of in their mind, just 10,000. That was, that was the high, that was the top number for them. Obviously, they didn't have a government spending money like ours does because we can consider, we can can contemplate billions and trillions of dollars and we just throw that around. But back in the ancient times, it was 10,000 times 10,000. You want to talk about an astronomical, mind-boggling amount of beings, you would describe them as myriads. That's tens of thousands times tens of thousands. Myriads upon myriads, thousands of myriads of angels. Thousands of ten thousands of angels. So the number suggests something that is immense to our imagination. The language describes an innumerable or countless host. We should also consider the variety of angels. Uh, we know in Scripture that there are at least archangels, seraphim, and cherubim. Now, there are other names or words that are used to describe angels that suggest to me that there are other species of angels or kinds of angels, if we could use that language. Words like Elohim and living creatures and princes and morning stars and watchers. God is a creative God. So when you think of angels, do you think of just like a cookie cutter approach to creating angels? Where God just, they're all the same. And we get to heaven, you're not going to be able to tell, you know, Joe from John. They're going to be so close that you won't be able to tell the difference between them or between one type of angel or another type of angel. There are angels who are permanently assigned to hover around the throne of God and to just sing day after day, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. That is their constant refrain. That's that's one kind of angel. So cherubim and seraphim and archangels. And I would go even further. I would I would venture to say that if you think that this world is filled with demonstrations of God's creativity and His diversity among humankind, wait till you see what God's diversity looks like among the angelic kind. I wouldn't be surprised if every angel were different. A different look. A different design. Look at God's creation just among dogs and cats. The variety that exists in that one created kind. And do you think that all the personality of angels is the same? These angels have personality. I understand that we use the term personality to describe persons. Persons have personality. 
But your dog has a personality, doesn't it? Your cat? I've owned a number of dogs in my lifetime. All of them have different personalities. I understand that they're not persons, but they have a certain way of comporting themselves, certain characteristics that are unique. Do you think that all of the angels talk the same, think the same, look the same, act the same? Or do you think that there might be diversity even amongst the angelic hosts? This is my speculation because I've never met an angel. And my guess is that there are probably angels who are listening to this right now. So if that's the case, I don't mean to slander you in any way. But (laughs) it is my speculation that amongst the angels, you're probably going to have all kinds of varieties of personalities. Amongst those intelligent, communicative, rational thinking beings. You're probably going to have more cerebral angels who like to read up on Reformation history and they like the Puritans and, and they liked hanging out. That was kind of their little niche. That was their thing. Then you're going to have the, the funny angels with a great sense of humor, always playing tricks on us and, and enjoying joking around about things and talking about things. You're going to have angels interested in animals and angels interested in botany and angels interested in human beings and periods of history and cultures and things that we develop in a new heavens and a new earth with all that we have to explore. They're going to find joy and delight in all of those things as well. So they are intelligent and rational beings, and their work is to serve God and His people, to bring messages to God's servants. We see this in Scripture. To physically protect sometimes God's servants from danger. Sometimes God protects His people just Himself sovereignly by what He does in His providence. Other times God assigns angels to protect His people, like in 2 Kings chapter 6 that I mentioned earlier. Some angels are assigned to constant and unceasing worship. Angels appear in Scripture to watch over us, to observe the church and its leadership and our conduct within the church. They join us for our worship, and they see us though we do not see them. And I think there are two implications of this that I just want to—I want you to think about in this next week. Two implications of this. When you are alone and you sin and you think nobody sees it, there may be hundreds of angels watching you. At that moment, rational, logical, thinking, communicative beings with whom you will spend eternity worshiping, conversing, and fellowshipping. Now, that's a bit of a make you sit up straight and take notice consideration. At the same time, that deed that you do all alone that is a good thing to serve somebody else, to sacrifice, to put sin to death to say no to temptation, to do the right thing, and you think that nobody notices. I think there are hundreds of angels who observe that, and they rejoice, and these are people, sorry, these are angelic beings with whom you will converse and fellowship and worship for all of eternity. Just the reference to this reminds us that everything we do is on display amongst the heavenly realm. And we have fellow worshiping creatures and beings who will join us in heaven for all of eternity, who will have observed our entire lives, and we will be able to have intelligent, rational conversations with them about the things that God did. Just keep that in mind. Now, the significance of their mention here, I think that there are two connections to our context which are very significant, and I don't want you to miss these. Two points of of, of connection. First, the mention of the coming paradise of God, the holy city, the heavenly city of Jerusalem, Mount Zion, that future reality should remind us that what's being described in Revelation 21 and 22 is a a paradise that God has prepared for those who are His. We have come from a paradise and we are going back to a paradise. The nature of these two paradises is slightly different, but that we've been exiled from a paradise and we are going back to a paradise. 
The very first mention of angels actually is in Genesis chapter 3. So, this is after the fall of man, so he drove man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. So the very first mention of an angel in Scripture is the mention that an angel was stationed at the entrance of the garden to guard the way to the tree of life, so that man, who had been, because of his sin and rebellion, exiled from paradise, kicked out of the presence of God, where God walked with him in the cool of the day at one point, and man had unfettered and unhindered fellowship with God in the garden. Because of his sin, he has been exiled from that. Paradise has been lost. And the angel was stationed at the entrance of that paradise, guarding the way to the tree of life, so that no man could come back and eat of that tree. And that angel was a symbol, a signal that we had been exiled, that we had lost everything. And now that symbol, that angel was a symbol of terror and judgment and wrath. And that if we approached and tried to go back into that garden where God dwelt with man prior, that he would be judged and he would be executed for his sin. So that angel suddenly became now an object or a symbol of terror and dread And then you see angels again at Mount Sinai. So remember, we have talked about Mount Sinai verses 18 through verse 21. Angels were present at Sinai as well. So now it's interesting that he would mention angels being present in the New Jerusalem, having just contrasted this Mount Zion with Mount Sinai. Angels were present at the giving of the law, and we don't read this here in this passage, but other places in Scripture. So, for instance, in Acts 7, verse 53, you who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Stephen there is describing the the law being given having been ordained through angels. Other passages like Galatians 3.19 are even more clear. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions. Having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator. There was a mediator between God and man. So that terror that we describe in verses 18-21, through 21, the fear and the terror at Mount Sinai with the judgment and the condemnation and the law, there were angelic beings who were present for all of that. Deuteronomy 33, verse 2, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran, and He came from the midst of 10,000 holy ones. At His right hand there was flashing lightning for them. Psalm 68:17 The chariots of God are myriads thousands upon thousands the Lord is among them as at Sinai in holiness so there were angels present at the giving of the law Remember verse 18 and 19 describe the blazing fire the darkness the gloom the whirlwind verse 19 talks about the blast of the trumpet who do you think was blowing the trumpets it wasn't Moses and Aaron it wasn't the people of Israel those trumpets were being blown by angelic hosts so this just adds to the terror of that event at Sinai. It's, it's enough that God would be there and that He would thunder with His voice and give the law and that there would be fire and smoke and gloom and darkness and everything that was associated with that, that the people would look upon those visible physical phenomena of God's presence and, and be struck with terror in their hearts. But then imagine 10,000 upon 10,000 of angels blowing trumpets and, and hovering around Mount Sinai as well while the law is being given. That would just add to the terror of that event. And here's the good news, and this is the connection to the context here. Angelic hosts are no longer like that for us. They're no longer like that for us. In the new paradise, the angelic hosts will also guard the way to the tree of life because Revelation 21 verse 12 says that the new Jerusalem has a great high wall with 12 gates and at the 12 gates, 12 angels. And names were written on them which are the name of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. So there will be angelic hosts at the gates in the New Jerusalem, but they will not be there to keep you and I from the tree of life. They will be there welcoming us into the New Jerusalem. 
You see, our, our, our approach to angels, our, our relationship with angels has changed because of what Christ has done. So now we are fellow citizens of the New Jerusalem. They're with us there and welcoming us in, and rather than cutting us off and guarding us from the tree of life and making it so paradise is cut off from us, now they stand at the entrances of the 12 entrances of the New Jerusalem and they will welcome us in. That's yet another contrast with Sinai. In the, in the garden, angels guarded the entrance to keep us out. And in the new paradise, angels will guard the entrance to welcome us in. And they will be there as a reminder that that path which was once cut off from us, now because of what Christ has done, the Lamb who is at the center of the new Jerusalem, because of what He has done, you and I can walk freely now and partake of the, of the tree of life. And then there's a phrase here in verse 23 that describes the gathering that we shall have. It says, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn. The phrase general assembly does not describe the church of the firstborn. The phrase general assembly is intended to describe the gathering of the angels. That phrase, the NASB, the, the phrase general assembly, the NASDB does not do it justice. Not at all. And I'll tell you why. Because the idea of a general assembly, that doesn't sound fun at all, does it? That doesn't sound inviting or enjoyable. Oh, I have come to the general assembly of people. That sounds stuffy, cold, no fellowship there, just a, a, ca- a gathering or a collection of nameless and faithless peoples. But that is not what is being described here. The words describe the angels and not the church. It is the angels in general assembly. They say, well, that doesn't sound much better. Well, the words general assembly there actually describe a festival or a feast. The ESV translates this verse, innumerable angels in festal gathering. The NIV, thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. This is the word, though it is only used once in the New Testament, and it's here. It is the Greek word that was used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to describe the feasts and the festivals and the joyful gathering assemblies that God commanded His people to, to participate in as in Old Testament Israel. They were to gather together and enjoy these festivals of celebrating the goodness of God. And so in the Old Testament, this word was used to describe those prescribed festival gatherings, joyful assemblies of the people. It's used that way in Amos 5, verse 21, where God says, I hate and I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. They, they would get together and they would, they would be joyful, they would be filled with joy, there would be all kinds of celebration, but because they were gathering in the wrong way, because they were gathering for the wrong purposes and doing the wrong things, God says, I reject and I hate your festival gatherings. But yet God had commanded them to do it. But when Israel, with their sin, came and approached God in that way, God says, I reject them. So it is not just a general assembly. It is a heavenly, joyful, festive, festival celebration gathering. That's what we've been brought to. Not just angels, like we're going to be in terror, but angels having a big party where God is at the center of it. It is an angelic festival, an angelic festival of worship where God's people get to gather together with angelic beings who have a lot of practice worshiping God because they've been doing it for thousands of years. And we get to step into their presence. We have been gathered together with those angelic beings as part of a festival worship service, a festal gathering. It's festivity. It's joy and it's celebration. You and I will have a lot to celebrate. God's justice over His enemies, which we sing about Sunday after Sunday. His triumph of grace on His people. 
Our freedom from sin, the banishment of death, the triumphs of Christ through His people and for His people, a new creation that you and I will get to explore and develop and enjoy, and it will never be spoiled. You see, what the author is describing here that you and I get to anticipate and look forward to with great expectation is being brought into the presence of angelic hosts and having one eternal celebration. One eternal celebration. A celebration that never ends that is inside of that city, the Holy Jerusalem. You and I get to come and we get to go. We get to participate. We get to bring others. We get to visit it. We get to participate in it. We get to go in and out of that city and enjoy all of those blessings. And this is a reminder that every celebration that you and I enjoy here in this world is a foretaste of one that is to come. Every party, every get-together, every gathering with saints... Every celebration, every experience of delight, every experience of satisfaction, every experience of joy, every experience of happiness and fulfillment, that is merely a glimpse of what God has in store for those who are His. And you get to enjoy all of that with angelic beings. But here's the difference between then and now. That celebration will never be spoiled by sin. This is significant. This, I think, is the most appealing thing about heaven for me is the absence of sin and sinfulness. Because we will be able to participate in a celebration like that and we will never have to wonder, did I say something wrong to that person? You ever leave a a celebration and you think, you know, halfway through that thing, so-and-so, their attitude towards me just totally changed. Did I say something wrong? Did I say something offensive? Did I stay too long? Did I leave too early? Did I monopolize the conversation again? I mean, they started talking about my favorite sport and... For 40 years, I just sat there and talked about that. And we never went beyond that. Did I bring up a bad memory? Did I say something offensive? Did I cut somebody else off? You'll never have to have any celebration spoiled by sin. You will be able to gather for worship and no service will ever be interrupted. The pastor will not say something that is embarrassing or stupid. The worship leader will never annoy you. Nothing will ever spoil that. There'll be nothing to defile it. Nothing negative that you and I associate with gathering together. Did I eat too much? Did I drink too much? Did I laugh too much? Did I talk too much? Or did I not do those things enough? Did I not say thank you when I showed up? Did I not say thank you before I left? Not have to worry about any of that. You and I are being gathered together with angelic hosts for a festival celebration. That's the New Jerusalem. And every glimpse of that that we get here in this world, including the barbecue which is to come, should remind you of the joys and the delights that we get to have for thousands upon thousands of years in the new Jerusalem and in the new creation. What a rich blessing that you and I have been given that the terror of Sinai has been removed because of the death of Christ and that the expulsion from the paradise has been reversed. The terror is gone and the paradise lost has been secured and regained for us. Friends, these these things that we are describing in this passage, when I speak about heaven and the angelic hosts that are there, and you're gathering to them, if you are in Jesus Christ, these things are as certain to you, they are more certain than anything else that you have ever experienced or anticipated in this life. Absolutely and perfectly secured for you by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. He died to take away your sin, He died to pay the price that you deserve for your rebellion against Him. He died to restore to you the 
the paradise that was lost in Adam, as the head of our race, as our new Adam, as our new representative, He has given back to His people everything that was lost in the fall and then some. We get not just that creation back, we get that creation resurrected and renewed and made new and never to be spoiled by sin again. That's what has been restored to us. That is what we look forward to. A heavenly city, a new Jerusalem, Mount Zion, and this time a mountain covered with angels, yes, but no longer terrifying us, now welcoming us, fellowshipping with us, conversing with us, celebrating with us, and telling back and forth us with them and with each other all of the glories of our God because He has done these things. That's what we get to expect. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.